Good morning. I'm excited to get to share with you this morning. An interesting thing happened at the first service. I kind of went a little long, and uh, there was a guy sitting back there, and he got up to start walking out. And, you know, he probably had something to do, but I had to ask him. I said, sir, I'm almost done. Um, where are you going? He said, well, I need a haircut. I said, you need a haircut? Why didn't you do that before you came to church? He said, I didn't need one before I came to church. I didn't go that long, but that didn't really happen. Um, You know, Sid asked me if I would fill in for him on April 30th. And, uh, of course, I said, yeah, I'm excited to. I'll be glad to share. Usually when I fill in for people, I get to choose my scripture. And uh, and then eventually Sid told me, oh, you're going to wrap up the series on Through the Eyes of John, and you're going to be preaching from uh, Revelation 22. What? Who does that to people? He hates me. Anyway, but I was reminded that, you know, Jesus... Uh, or, uh, you know, God spoke through the mouth of a donkey one time, so surely he can use me, right? Through the eyes of John, you know, Sid's done an excellent job of, of showing us from John's perspective who Jesus is, what he means, um, and what that means for me. And, uh, and so he continues and wants to conclude some of these thoughts here in Revelation. John is exiled on the island of Patmos uh, because he believes, and he sees some strange things there. First of all, he, you know, he sees the angels and the elders and, and Jesus, you know, the crystal sea, uh, but then he starts seeing some pretty wacky things, uh, you know, some things that might make you think he's been on the island of Patmos a little too long. He sees these, these six-winged creatures, a lamb with seven legs. Uh, he sees these seals that are broken and all of these nasty plagues go pouring forth. Uh, he sees a red dragon. He sees a, a, a beast with seven heads. He sees a lake of fire, you know, and he's thinking, whoa, what's all this stuff? You know, most of the time we're kind of intimidated by the book of Revelation because it, it has a lot of things that we can't quite understand. A lot of symbolism, and it, this means this, and this means that. A lot of people really try to work hard to, to uncover all of that and, and figure things out. But, you know, he's really describing a dream and a vision and something that he really doesn't have the vocabulary to communicate. It's kind of like, you know, describing the most beautiful sunset landscape you've ever seen with the vocabulary of a two-year-old. You just don't have it. You can't communicate these things really clearly. Uh, so it seems confusing all, and all of this. And you don't, I don't want to get into interpreting uh, what all of these events are. Because when it all comes down to it, what we need to know about the book of Revelation is John is saying without a doubt through the mouth of Jesus that he's coming back, that God's team wins, and you want to be on that team. That's what he's trying to say through all of this. And that's what these concluding thoughts are as we wrap up uh, the series, especially looking into the book of Revelation from John's perspective. Now, John sitting on the island of Patmos, it probably seemed that Rome was in charge of the world. It probably seemed Rome controlled what was going on. And if you know much about history, you think things are bad in our world today. Uh, the Roman Empire was brutal, especially if you defied the emperor. So the book of Revelations reminds us, no, Rome's not in charge. And we need to remember that God 
is in charge. God's in charge of our country. It's not a political party. It's not a, a politician. It's not who has the wealth. God is in control. And he's weaving throughout history all of these things. And, you know, the book of Revelations may seem confusing, but it really answers two of our biggest questions. And that's what we're going to look at today. Two of my biggest questions. Now, I'm going to read the scripture here in Revelations 22, uh, 12 through 17. And listen to these words. Listen to them in perspective of your life, of your goals in life, your, your uh, ambitions in life. Listen to them in terms of your lifestyle and your priorities, okay? Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. First of all, Jesus reminds us that he's coming soon. And the soon doesn't necessarily mean a time frame. Every generation has thought that Jesus is going to reappear or appear during their lifetime. Obviously, they've been wrong. The idea, though, is that Jesus is coming rapidly. That he will come when we least expect it. And our job is to be ready. I'm glad he didn't come 25 years ago because I would have been outside of Christ. But the thing is, if I really know who Jesus is, then I won't have any problem being ready for his return. So let's focus on that. Who is Jesus? First of all, he's not who you think he is. He describes himself here in verse 13 as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. You probably already knew that. So he's the beginning and the end. He's saying he's the A to Z and everything in between. That's who he is. What does this mean? First of all, the Old Testament continuously referenced God as the beginning and the end of everything. And so Jesus is saying, I'm God. I am God. He is part of the Godhead, and he's existed throughout eternity. He was not born on Christmas morning. He came to the earth on Christmas morning. And he did not die on Passover. He did die physically, resurrected from the dead on Easter, and he continues to live. He's saying that he is eternal. He was even part of the creation. If you read Genesis 1.26, it says, Let us make man in our image. Now, the pronouns are distinctly Plural. So why would there be plural pronouns if there was only one God in that creation? He's describing the Trinity, what we know to be the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's a sermon for another time. But it's something that we need to try to understand. 
again, even though it's beyond our abilities, to fully comprehend. Second, he is alive. He's the beginning and the end and everything in between. He is alive today. Through the eyes of John, John was convinced that Jesus is still alive. In fact, that's why his life is, is uh, slowly degrading on the island of Patmos. He was exiled from the country because of his faith. He is also, he is also the bridge. Now, when I think of eternity, I think the bridge is about the best way I can think of uh, to explain it. Because a bridge has a beginning and an end, right? But the road starts far before the bridge starts, and the road continues far beyond where the bridge ends. So although he's saying he's the beginning and the end, he's the beginning and end of everything that we know, but he has always existed from time past, and he'll always exist in a time future. That's a crazy thing to try to wrap your mind around, isn't it? The eternity of God. Also, he's not bound by time. The word time in your bulletin there, just put a circle around that. Jesus exists everywhere beyond that circle. We can only exist in what we know as time. But Jesus existed outside of time. And he can be at any point in time without a flux capacitor. That's a good thing, isn't it? This also tells us that he is constant. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end. We search for things that are constant in our crazy world, don't we? Things are chaotic. One thing breaks, we get it fixed, and something else breaks. Good grief. Here we go again. This endless cycle, ups and downs. You know, I asked my son what heaven was, was like uh, this morning at breakfast time. He said, what do you think heaven's like? He, Quinn is seven. He said, hmm, it's better than anything. He said, it's even better than our best day at Silver Dollar City. Now, that's a big thing, isn't it? That's a big deal. But Jesus is constant and he exists in this eternity, and sometime, someday we'll understand it. The concepts of the Trinity and eternity, those are not things that our minds can comprehend, right? But they're things that God knows about, things that God is. And how can God be something beyond our understanding? I mean, who does he think he is? God? I'm grateful that God is beyond my understanding. And I don't have to understand him to know him as God. In fact, if I did, I probably wouldn't need him as God. I would be my own God. But there's still much more that I don't understand. Next, let's drop down to verse 16. I'm kind of shifting up the scripture a little bit. But in verse 16, it reads, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you the testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. He's the root and offspring of David. That's a messianic title. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be a descendant of David in the line of David. But Jesus is also saying, I created David. I was a part of creation, remember? So I, I, I'm not only his descendant, but I created him. And then he says he's the bright morning star, another messianic title. He is the Messiah the Jewish people had been looking for and waiting for, uh, for generations. Jesus appears, he fulfills those scriptures. He is the Messiah. He's making that clear here, and, and John is reiterating it in Revelation. What does the morning star do? What does morning light do? It relieves the darkness. When we live in darkness before we know Christ, before we have the light of Christ, 
we stumble over a lot of stuff, don't we? You know, if you're walking through your house at night, my wife put a nightlight in our bathroom that shines into our bedroom. You know, so I go in the bathroom and brush my teeth and, and then I come out and, and walk around the bed and, and then I realize I forgot to close the door, the nightlight in there, so it shines in our eyes. So then I get up and I stumble, I trip over, let's see, usually shoes, maybe a backpack, there's who knows whatever. Because it's dark, you stumble over these things. When we first moved into our house in Warrensburg, uh, one of the first nights I was there, my wife was out of town. I was just I and, my, and the kids. And yes, fathers, you can do it. It's, it's possible. And I heard the scratching on, uh, on uh, one of our bedroom windows. It was, I mean, it was weird. It wasn't like an animal. It was just like really strange. And then it went away. And then pretty soon I hear, I hear it on the other window on the other side of our bed. And it sounded like somebody was trying to take the screen off. And so I peeked through the blinds, and the guy's eyes on the other end were about as big as mine at that point. Somebody was in, trying to break into our house. Woo! That was a little freaky. I thought we moved to a decent neighborhood. We didn't know. Now we know why Papa John's doesn't deliver there on weekends, so it's, it's pretty bad stuff. It's okay. They need the Lord in our neighborhood, too, so... So anyway, I was scared. I got up. I, I tried to get some information. You know, I was, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, so I was still kind of rattled, and, and things were dark. And I didn't have my contacts in, so I couldn't really see anything. I called the police, and they came out, and, you know, they uh, did all of their, their stuff. But, you know, when I got back to bed, my heart was still racing, and I just laid there wide awake, praying, thanking God that nothing happened, praying over my kids. They were totally undisturbed throughout all of this. But when the morning light first started coming through, that was the most beautiful light I think I'd ever seen. When you have walked through a terribly dark time in life and that light first appears, isn't it beautiful? That's Jesus, the bright morning star, bringing in the new day. Uh, And that's a beautiful thing. That's who Jesus is. And What we know of Jesus, what we believe of Jesus today here on this earth will determine how we meet him on that day that he returns. Because, first of all, in this scripture we want to answer who is Jesus, but we also want to know what does he want from me? What does he want from me? Verse 14, he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs... I thought all dogs go to heaven. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, all of those bad, nasty people, right? First of all, he says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed is plural here in this scripture, which means they are multiple blessings. Some of your translations may say, blessed are those who do your commands or commandments. Now, we can reconcile both. There are a lot of different ideas, but I think we can reconcile both. When we do his commandments, we're blessed because his commands are good and right for us. So there are multiple blessings by, by, uh, by following the commands. Not to be saved, because we are saved. I like the picture here of washing the robes. Washing our robes. Remember Lady Macbeth? Lady Macbeth, after committing murder with her husband, she walked around 
endlessly, trying to wash her hands, trying to get the filth off of her, trying to relieve herself of this disgusting stain. She couldn't even get the smell off of her. Nothing could wash it away. Friends, you and I have that stain. There's nothing that can wash it away. We're helpless to get rid of it, and we will be pursuing any and everything to get rid of it until our robes are washed. Now, it is an active part. We have to be part of the washing process. We have to do some scrubbing, but the cleaning agent is Jesus. He is the one. His blood provides for our cleansing, right? And he is able to wash us better than any OxyClean commercial. Remember the OxyClean commercials? I remember watching that with my kids, and, and one of my kids said one time, why does he just shout all the time? Remember that guy shouting? So blessed are those who wash their robes, because that gives them to the right to the tree of life. They can enter into the heavenly city. Now, what does he say about those outside? First of all, I want to say those sexually immoral people, the practicing falsehoods, the practicing magical arts, all of that. Well, that described me before my robes were washed. The difference between those inside and outside is a matter of having your robes washed. In verse 17, he says, The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the waters of life. So what does he want from me? He wants me to wash my robes. He also wants me to come. He says, The Holy Spirit and the church, the bride, say, Come. The bride is a beautiful picture of the church. The bride is preparing herself. The bride is anticipating with anxiety of this relationship that is about to begin. And the groom is excited too to be together with the bride. Somebody told me this recently. The incredible thing is when the groom is standing on the stage and the doors open and the bride first walks in. First of all, she looks and she sees the aisle in front of her. Then she glances up and sees the altar and then she sees him and she thinks to herself I'll alter him let's move on we can read this both as the spirit and the bride as both as an invitation because there are times in my life and the kids that I deal with that show me and the circumstances that they come from that just that they just nauseate me And I think, come, Lord Jesus, come. I can't take this anymore. How can things get any worse than this? I'm ready for you to come. In fact, last night, finishing up the sermon, I was ready for him to come. But it can also be seen as as us, as the church, inviting others to come. And I think that's a beautiful picture, too. Come. Who should come? Those who are thirsty. Are you thirsty? You recognize that you have a need for refreshment. You know, a person can survive 40 days without food, but only three days without water. There are so many things that I try to satisfy myself with, so many other beverages that I choose that don't satisfy when this water, this, this water is free and available to me. Come, drink. He also says take. Come and take the free waters of life. You know, that's something that separates Christianity from all other religions. Every religion is going to tell you, you have to do this, do this, do this, do this. Jesus comes along and says, it's done, it's done, it's done, it's done. Now just come, come and take. You can't do anything anyway. 
You can do something when you are cleansed and you have my spirit working through you. Then you can do something worthwhile. But I don't require you to bring anything to me. Every religion is going to say either go and do or come and bring. But no other religion says come and take. Our God is inviting us right here to come and take. Come and take. Have your fill. Our invitation, our opportunity is right here before us. You know, I'm thinking about all of this. Last night I was thinking of of a young lady that came to show me a couple years ago. Her name is Journey. Beautiful name. And I remember the first time I met Journey as a teenager. She was frail. She was frightened. She came up to me and, and I said, Welcome home, Journey. We're glad you're here. And she said, I just want you to know I don't believe in your God. I said, That's fine. Welcome home. We're glad you're here. Journey was thirsty. She had tried every other beverage on the market to fill that thirst. And she denied the one thing that was going to satisfy. Well, Journey had an interesting journey. Journey, through, uh, through, mostly through our other students at Show Me, started to see a different side of this God that she didn't believe in. Several students would sit with her at lunchtime and And, uh, you know, even though she had a chip on her shoulder and tried to keep everybody away, Journey uh, would listen, and and, and the other students would love her and listen and ask her questions. Didn't get preachy. We had a six-year-old girl that would write a scripture on a post-it note and give it to her every morning. There were so many people that wanted Journey to see the hope that could be hers. Eight weeks after she came to show me and told me I don't believe in your God, she came and told me, I want your God. She said, I know I need Jesus. And I don't understand everything about it or how to get it, but I know I want it. And the other side of that is is the journey uh, when we talk about Jesus coming back. Oh, won't that be wonderful? Jesus comes back, we get to be with him, we get to end the suffering that we have to experience on this earth. And Journey says, but wait, I know a lot of people that aren't ready. That should be a cry of a Christian. I am thirsty, I want the Lord, I am that bride, I can't wait, but I want other people to come with me. That was the cry of the Christians. In the early church, as they were facing persecution, they would encourage with one another with the word Maranatha. Maranatha means come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. It's both an invitation of, I am so ready to leave this life and to move into eternity. And it's an encouragement to others to keep pressing on because the reward is going to be worth it. Maranatha. You know, throughout the Bible, throughout, through the eyes of John, throughout all of Scripture, there's one thing that is constant, and that is the fact that God wants you to be with Him. Undeniable. God wants you to be with Him. The question is, do we want to be with Him? It's a question we all have to struggle with. It's a question we all are going to have to face. My prayer for you and for me. I can say, Maranatha, I am ready, ready for my groom. I am 
ready for my home where I belong. I'm ready. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you give us what we need. And our greatest need is you. And I'm grateful that I do not have to pursue you. I have to stop and let you catch me. You say come and you say take. It is free. And you can satisfy my deepest thirst. And you can prepare me for my eternal home where, where I belong anyway. Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you for making it possible.